Welcome to Health Yeah. I'm Jack Ayers. I'm Rachel Loader. And I'm Kate Dixon. This is a podcast by health professionals and students for health professionals and students. Keeping you in the know on health policy happenings in Kansas and beyond. Just as in medicine, the world of policy evolves quickly and things may have changed by the time you hear this podcast. Is this recording video too? So like, look, good. Yeah. Okay. We don't have to post it if we don't want to, but. Okay. <laughs> I was just wondering. We'll just, we'll see what, we'll see where the wind blows. We'll see us. how it comes out. Yeah. All right. It's season two, officially. <laughs> Hard to believe. Honestly, I didn't know that if we were going to be able to pull it off, but here we are. <laughs> with, the, with the black hole in the calendar that occurred between March and October. Yeah, I don't no think surprise. those months really just exist. Didn't miss much. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get right into it. Let's let's uh, catch everybody up to speed. Top three best things that happened to us since our last episode, which was like in May, one of the months that didn't exist. <laughs> Rachel, you start with your, That's your number Rachel, one. You go for it. Um. So I have a very specific thing that I just thought of that might have changed my life. Um, Betsy Knappen, if you listen to this, your chocolate chip recipe is the best thing that has ever entered my mouth. Those, Her chocolate chip cookies are the best thing that's happened to me in 2020. And one weekend, I think I literally ate about 25. Um, also among... The good news in my life since May, graduating nursing school and starting a job, yes. really doing it now. It's, I'm loving it. Uh, I love the postpartum and gyne and newborns. So um, that's been very good. And something I've really enjoyed the past few months has been kayaking a lot. Dug some old kayaks out of my dad's shed and they're still inflatable, still work. And I've been loving it. Where have you been uh, going? Well, I learned quickly that you do need a permit to use them. You need a permit? Yes, because... That sounds like unnecessary government overreach. (laughs) You know what was also unnecessary was the sirens and lights that the police officer used (laughs) upon approaching... I don't even remember the name of the pond. It was not even as big as a football field. Came in hot. Sirens <laughs> <laughs> and lights. <laughs> it told us to get out of the water. <laughs> so you do need a permit. So Emma and I figured that out, got some permits, and we just go to Shawnee Mission Lake now because it's easy to get to. Yeah. Yeah. Do not dare <laughs> use them easy. without a permit because they are, in fact, considered boats, and we almost got tickets. Your inflatable Uh, kayak is a boat. It is a boat, and that is an (laughs) offense under the law. (laughs) That is too funny. I'm going to have to contact my Miami County uh, commissioner to make sure there's no such rules just south of where we are. Well, I also have gotten a misdemeanor for not having um, a life jacket in a canoe one time as well. So that's also a misdemeanor. A misdemeanor. Yes. Oh, my God. I didn't know you were such a rebel child, Rachel. I I dance with the law (laughs) when it comes to water crap. I cannot be trusted, folks. 
<laughs> your crisis, oh. right? Jack, what's been keeping you afloat since May? <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, uh, I love that. Well, actually, it's funny you say that. That's that was. I had a very lake-oriented summer. You know, I uh, Ooh, love you know, that. I had a, had a buddy of mine has a house at Grand Lake. So we went down there, went to a couple of things, the Ozarks. You know, uh, and uh, tried to stay out of the news for you know <laughs> the COVID parties down there. But we had a good time. Um, I just but uh, Kate and I were talking about this the other day. It's it's one of those things where we uh. A lake, a lake-filled summer. That was a good thing. You were really right there on. more often than you weren't. That's right. It was good. Yeah, it was awesome. I love it. Doesn't it doesn't suck. No. That's a home runner. I think we've already told you this, Rachel, but Jack and I have it pretty well squared away, our boat and lake house situation for, That's you right. know, when we get our first paycheck in 39 years. <laughs> me and my gray hair will be awaiting a copy of that key <laughs> i can't wait. Right. can't wait it'll be a lot of fun you know until we become unsafe elderly citizens on the water so i'll get us all misdemeanors don't worry <laughs> <laughs> add it to the pot Before love this flush fun there's a swim up bar too right that's part of the plan. oh you know i honestly i hadn't totally thought about that but that's gotta happen yeah without a doubt yeah you know it <laughs> okay you've been traveling to someplace more exciting than lakes i i did i i took the plunge and took my first flight post pandemic or i guess mid pandemic really but um when was that i think it was in august you know we had our k95s and our eye shields the whole shebang and like just mounds of hand sanitizer but we did it and we went to um utah and then took a road trip from there to denver and it was so great to get back on an airplane i needed it so bad um and then we went again on another flight to glacier national park just recently and it was it's been on my list for a really long time and got to check it off so that was that was a big thing this summer um I watched my parents become empty nesters which has been hilarious and wonderful um my baby brother just graduated high school and he is off to college and so now my parents are just living their best life they eat spinach artichoke and queso for dinner some nights and they just have no complaints yeah don't care about there. vegetables anymore um <laughs> Spinach is a vegetable. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Cheese is good for you too. Mm -hmm. and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. I think that's all I got. Um, working at the health department was pretty great this summer. Um, learned a lot. I was very tired, but it was great. Good. Look at you. Yes. Um, but I am very glad that we decided to kick this back up. We were, um trying to strategize and we'll kind of get into it more later in the episode of how we're going to change things this year but first we are going to do our top two positive policy things that have happened since our last episode i think this was a challenge for all of us but we wanted to take a positive spin on everything that's happening right now so we'll go around the horn again rachel do you want to start it i know you said this was a struggle for you so we can put the spotlight on jack first 
Yeah. Take it away, Jack. Well, I, uh, for one, and, and granted, I'm a little more focused on this because my old boss that is uh, that's leading this group, but there was a really cool kind of announcement um, in August, actually, uh, coming out, uh, or I guess it was September, um, regardless, um, about a the Health and Human Services Department at the federal level created a rural action plan. And it's, uh, there's a lot of different things going on with this. We can link to it. Um, but just kind of starts to ask some big picture questions about, hey, what's the future of rural healthcare look like? And uh, it's very interesting because, you know, I think obviously, and Kate and I've gone around back and forth on this, but, you know, a lot of the uh, healthcare policy initiatives, at least, that you see are just policy in general is uh, COVID related, which it needs to be. Um, mm -hmm. But there is some question we asked about, hey, long term, uh, where are we on some of these kind of things that uh, uh, if COVID were to, at the snap of the thing, disappear tomorrow, you know, uh, certain issues would still exist, rural being a big one that I think uh, is important. So, uh, yeah, it was really interesting. And, you know, without going into too much detail, just kind of outlines um, a number of different new initiatives and some continuation of initiatives. And just kind of, it's good to see that there's big picture uh, thought, thought happening uh, there at that level. Uh, so be excited to track that and see where, see where that goes. Nice. So. So that's number one. Do you have a number two? You know, let me, uh, if somebody else wants to give one, I, I'm, I'm still trying to think through a little bit what that second one would be. So Sweet. Well, mine goes kind Every of... Every answer I have in my head is extremely sarcastic at the moment. So I got I to gotta reel it in a little bit. That's accepted here. Mine first one goes kind of off of yours um, with telehealth stuff. Um, and it, it does overlap with COVID because we saw a lot of restrictions being lifted with the pandemic. Um, in terms of just telehealth in general, um, we saw it spread pretty fast in the last few months. Um, and I'm pretty hopeful that that's gonna stick around into the future, um, hopefully. That can be something that's good that has come out of everything the last few months. Yeah. Um, kind of on that note, like telehealth and kind of promising things for the future that have stemmed from COVID that are semi, I guess, like policy related. I would like to throw in just like the success that we've seen with contact tracing and other kind of like intersection of like public health and um, COVID or like within cities and um, states that have like paused late payments on like water, rent, or like parking tickets, like things like that. I think that there's a lot of good things we can learn from that. And it's, I mean, it's too bad that it only is happening during the pandemic, but I think those have been like small little positive things that I've seen lately, like some flexibility with those things. Um, so I don't know. That, that's about my only positive contribution right now, I think. <laughs> What else, Jack? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm glad I had a second to collect thoughts on this. I'll have a little interesting factoid too with this, which is always good to learn about. So as some of you know, Senator Moran, uh, this is Kansas, uh, will be senior senator uh, as of next January, um, is also the chair of the VA committee. Uh, or I can't remember what the whole committee involves, but one of the big components of the committee is the uh, Veterans Affairs Administration. And uh, so there was some, interesting um legislator some really cool legislation i think 
essentially bolstering the mental health um, arm of the VA and allowing for some advanced kind of capabilities there with outreach related to mental health for our veterans, which I was really cool. Um, but, and my interesting factoid about this is I think it's interesting to think about the VA in this time, because there is a, uh, I can't remember if they call it the third arm or whatever they call it, but um, one of the missions of the VA is to provide um, essentially overflow capacity. So VA obviously is designed for care of veterans, um, but in um, unforeseen situations where there's uh, immense overflow at other hospitals, uh, the VA is designed to step in in that regard. So a little interesting factoid, hopefully, you know, we are, uh, I don't want to say we're out of the woods on COVID, but hopefully out of the woods on, on uh, that concern that we had earlier uh, in the year. So uh, interesting, you know, things happening there over the, at the VA. And I think um, I'm actually really looking forward to something on a personal level, uh, getting to work there uh, throughout third and fourth year rotations. Uh, I think it's a really interesting facet of healthcare, obviously, it has challenges over the years. Um, but there are some things at the VA, I think, that uh, are really um, interesting from a, a care perspective as a, as a provider. Um, you know, you, uh, to some extent, eliminate a lot of the concerns you have about a patient's ability to pay and uh, what will insurance cover, what they won't, because in theory, everybody is on uh, similar insurance protocol. So anyways, I just yeah. think the VA was on my mind and that's, uh, it's, you know, I think it'd be good to keep continue that because I think that is sometimes in the grand scheme of things, not always thought of um, when in fact it's a huge provider uh, across the board. So that's my second thing. <laughs> I like it. Absolutely. I'm also really excited for that. I think it's a completely different environment from any other health entity that we normally get to see in the clinical setting. So that'll be really cool. Um, my second thing is kind of along the same line as what Rachel mentioned. Um, just the, the new, I guess, focus on public health and kind of social needs um, that have really unfortunately been exposed through COVID. But I think it also, um, it it brought those needs to light and has has made way for different infrastructure to take place and maybe hopefully help with those needs in the future in a more long-term way. Yeah, and more comprehensive. Yes, yeah, I agree. And also primary care, which I can't, I can't oh. talk about enough. I think it also really showed the need for getting people set up with primary care early because we've seen a lot of the um, deaths and really extreme cases of COVID have been people with pre-existing conditions that if they would have had primary care from the get-go, um, you know, could have avoided some of those outcomes, which it's it wildly unfortunate that we had to have this pandemic to show those things, but um, in an effort to be more positive after the last six months of crap, this is my best effort. I well, I think it. that goes, I think it's an interesting point, Kate, because I, to some extent, I think we, you know, it's easy to see the long-term implications of some of these things, uh, you know, um, but a lot of those are, you know, your risk of getting XYZ, whatever that's cardiovascular disease or, um, you know, 
uh, lung can everything about smoking, you know, lung cancer, things like that, you know, it, uh, it increased by X amount, but it does change the paradigm a little bit when you're thinking, okay, I have just as much of a chance of, of you know, of getting the coronavirus, but, you know, assuming all risks are equal, you know, which they aren't, but, um, you know, it's just a matter of like, somebody could be completely fine or somebody could be really in a bad shape. And a lot of that is dependent on your pre-existing conditions or comorbidities, but you know, what, what have you. And that's yeah. interesting because that is the, in the immediate that's here now. Uh, that is so much less about your risks go from whatever, 25% to 50, I don't know the numbers, you know, on everything else. But for this, this is uh, pretty immediate. Yeah. So. Yeah. And scary for sure. Um, Rachel, did you think of a number two or should we move on to our number one? Let's move on to number one. All right. Do you want to do this one? Sure. Number one thing that I'm looking forward to this season, SDN. Yes. I think um, I really like the initiative and kind of idea that Kate brought into this season of, um, you know, a little bit of a positive spin and looking for the good and depolarizing kind of the climate that we're in. Um, I think it's much needed. I mean, I, I also believe there's a lot of work that needs to be done to create a healthier country climate environment for everybody. But um, I think that it's going to be a, a really positive thing that I'm looking forward to this season is kind of zooming out and looking at kind of a bigger picture and how the way we interact in our lives and world and in that picture of health and policy um, can really influence things and what we can do to kind of end this hyperpolarization that we're experiencing. I'll, I'll jump in on that. I love that. So uh, can you, is my shirt facing the right way for you all to see it? Yeah, it is. I love it. it. Yeah. So it's seven times. Just love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. I so want one. Why seven? I, I can get you one, actually. I'll ask my mom. I don't know if you saw her stand here a minute yes. ago. I'll see if she can come back in yeah. and we can order some shirts. Uh, but so it's uh, the Church of the Resurrection is, uh, as some of you know, a big church and main campus in Leewood uh, with satellite campuses in Overland Park and uh, across the Kansas City area. And I go to the Overland Park campus. But anyways, they're... That's, that, was the, that was the theme of the sermon this morning, uh, which starts this whole love your neighbor kind of series, which is essentially about we have all these campaigns, uh, federal, state, local, what have you. Uh, and so their mission is to put in signs wherever they see political signs um, that says love your neighbor. Or love kind of I love that. And very timely. For, wow. Yeah. It's very timely. And I think it just, it goes back to just, and I, and I think this is something that is really interesting particularly in healthcare uh you know but certainly across the board um is this idea of you know altruism as it exists in healthcare providers or healthcare students um and it's amazing how when we all have a similar goal at the end of the day uh but perhaps different methods to achieve that goal or even uh, maybe if, maybe they're not that similar, but you know maybe there's a um, uh, big disagreement or big difference in ideas. Um, you know, at the end of the day, our our goal should all be the same goal, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Help your fellow man. So, you know, uh, and I think that's kind of what the point of this is. Hey, what's what's the base? What's our baseline here? What's how are we operating this? And so, uh, that's 
somewhat independent of the podcast what we're doing, but I surely have been thinking about this in the sense of, you know, it's a growth oversimplification, but at the same time, uh, you think about it, uh, what's, what's the, uh, what's the whole issue with the hyperpartisanism and, you know, there's not a lot of loving of your neighbor. Uh, you know, if you've got a Trump sign in your yard, neighbor's got a Biden sign in their yard, vice versa. Uh, you know, that's, that's, it's sometimes hard to love, to love the neighbor that has the opposing signs. And I, I think, right. you know, driving around neighborhoods, I, I, that's one of the things I think is interesting about the season is, you know, you see that you see a sign that has all of the Republican candidates, and then you have their yard that has all the Republican candidates, a yard that has all the Democratic candidates, and you think, man, I, I hope that those people are getting along. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, on, just on that train, that that'd just be my kind of general general thing as well, uh, kind of echoing what Rachel said. So. Um. Yeah, I'm with you guys. It's kind of I. I also, and I just watched Social Dilemma, which again, we'll talk about a little bit later. And yeah. so I am especially excited. Ditto both of the things that you guys said. And then also just the impact of social media. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping the digger or the, the further we dig into this, the more and more I'm going to want to delete forever these apps off my phone. <laughs> and uh, you know, just kind of highlight some of the the bad actors in that system and what that looks like um, and ways to avoid it. I think that uh, we can go out of our way to see the opposing side. And I know all of us are a little bit different ideologically, which is why, you know, kind of on purpose with, with this podcast, um, and so I, I'm hoping through these different studies, even just some of them that I'm going to reference later, we can we can all identify the the parts of our own lives that we can do um, to improve on our own hyperpolarization behaviors, and you know hopefully lead by example to some degree in these discussions moving forward. And um, yeah, that's all I got. Um, I love that. On that note, let's talk a little bit about how we are going to do things this year. I think um, we haven't really advertised even in this episode, much less that we are going to do a full other season. And that has been a little bit intentional and also a little bit um, the fact that we are all drowning in our own lives. <laughs> so, and also, we just had so many listeners and people just hunting us down. We were. had to wait for the big reveal. <laughs> we didn't know where to start. <laughs> totally. Please. Totally. So <laughs> instead of the setup that we had uh last season where you know we had these very finite segments and and a very involved interviews and um you know notes for each show, we're keeping it casual this year. Um I think that it's more fun for us to do this podcast in a little bit more casual note. And also with all of our lives getting a little bit busier, a little bit more crazy. This is what we're capable of. Um, but we still want to keep it very informative for everyone. We're still going to talk about um, different policy happenings every month. We're going to just one show per month instead of one every two weeks. Um, and we'll kind of keep it the same way as, as we're doing this episode where we just talk about two policy happenings that we're excited about. Um, I think there's enough news out there right now that has 
negative things happening. And while those are important to stay on top of, um, you can reference last season's notes for any of the news outlets that you guys want to use to stay involved in that. We're going to keep it positive here. Um, but the entire season is going to have this overarching theme of hyperpolarization. We're going to dig into what that is, how it's played out both in our personal lives and at a greater scale, you know, at the state and federal level, um, and just what it means and how we can hopefully overcome it as a society and as a country. Um, and in some of just the intro studies that I've looked at, it's not just the U.S. that's dealing with this. It's any... Mm -hmm it's any democracy across the world right now is facing similar issues with hyperpolarization. Um, we're also going to talk about the elections. Obviously it's 2020. We know what's coming. November's around the corner. It's going to be a big election, not just at the presidential level. We also have some pretty uh, interesting races here at the state level. And we're going to talk about all that in November and local <laughs> and local. Thank you, Jack. Um, December, we want to, and we did a survey last season that we're still working through, um, but we want to do a survey again this year that talks about that implicit bias that we all have within politics. Um, I know that um, we'll talk about it a little bit with some of these studies that, um, that I found just in my initial research, but we'd also like to take a, a snapshot of what that looks like here at KUMC. Um, so we're going to start blasting out that survey here shortly, but if you guys are listening and have an extra interest in getting involved in that, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, and I think that's all of my, let me see. Yeah, that's all I have. So I think we're going to go ahead and get into the excerpts and the abstracts of the hyperpolarization articles that I found Rachel and Jack, um, I haven't shared these with you yet, and that's been intentional. I did share one link with you, but I just want to read a couple of the excerpts that I found and then just hear your initial reaction, and we can kind of, we can get into discussion from there. But um, I've kind of found this, this, this evolution of, of hyperpolarization or just polarization studies in general. And because of where it lies, um, you know, in the science world, it really, it overlaps a, a couple different areas, social science, psychology, um, and then obviously political science. And so it's been somewhat difficult to find articles, but I did a little digging and I'm going to start in 2012. So this first article that I found is called Affect, Not Ideology, A Social Identity Perspective on Polarization. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit of the abstract as well as um, one other paragraph here. Um, so using data from a variety of sources, we demonstrate that both Republicans and Democrats increasingly dislike, even loathe their opponents. We also find that partisan affect is inconsistently and perhaps artifactually founded in policy attitudes. The more plausible account lies in the nature of political campaigns. Exposure to messages attacking the outgroup reinforces partisans' biased views of their opponents. So then further in the introduction, it says, some argue that elite polarization is not a response to mass polarization, but is instead an unintended consequence of institutional changes. Relatedly, they argue that the elites haven't persuaded their followers to take on more extreme positions. 
These scholars portray the median citizen as someone who is centrist on most issues. Others contest this description of the masses, citing a decline in the number of ideological moderates and a near doubling of the average distance between the ideological self-placement of non-activist Democrats and Republicans between 1972 and 2004. In short, there is considerable debate over whether the masses are ideologically polarized. So in 2012, a lot of academics were arguing over whether this was just the elite politicians or if it was actually um, a reflection of the entire U.S. as a whole, if it was voters or was it just the people that are really politically active? I ask this question all the time. Like, I think that's a really, so did the article resolve that? Because I think that's an interesting question. Like, does polarization happen because you have polarized electorate and that leads to polarized uh, candidates slash electeds? Or is it polarized electeds and associated uh, folk, you know, which trickles down into what right. essentially makes the electorate look polarized? I love where your head's at, and that's exactly where this next article went in 2015. I love it. I love it. So in 2015, we have an article called The Rise of Negative Partisanship and the Nationalization of U.S. Elections in the 21st Century. So this takes it the next step. Okay, our elite politicians are definitely, they're polarized, but is it really the U.S. as a whole? So this abstract says one of the most important developments of affecting electoral electoral competition in the U.S. has been the increasingly partisan behavior of the American electorate, yet more voters than ever claim to be independents. We argue that the explanation for these seemingly contradictory trends is the rise of negative partisanship. Using data from the American National Election Studies, we show that as, a partisan, that as partisan identities have become more closely aligned with social, cultural, and ideological divisions in American society, Party supporters, including leaning independents, have developed increasingly negative feelings about the opposing party and its candidates. This has led to dramatic increases in party loyalty and straight ticket voting, a steep decline in the advantage of incumbency and growing consistency between the results of presidential, presidential elections and the results of House, Senate, and even state legislative elections. The rise of negative partisanship has had profound consequences for electoral competition, democratic representation, and governance. So this is saying that, yeah, you know, kind of like what Jack was saying, it is the elite, the people that are politically affiliated, but then we saw this huge wave of negative campaign ads just smacking us in the face, and so it did have an impact on the overall nation. It gets okay. crazier. Go ahead. Yeah, I will say it gets interesting. I don't I cut it off in case you're going in this direction. Uh, but, uh, and I think some of that I wonder is, you know, it, people are not necessarily single issue voters, but there's certainly a handful, like, you know, the, the, the number of issues for which people will decide to make a decision on their ballot, you know, I imagine is, 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 is a smaller uh, than perhaps with the full scope of, you know, what it potentially could be or should be. Uh, I guess what I'm saying by that is, I, I wonder if there's a component of that as well, which goes back to the likely voters that you try to target in the election uh, compared to your full uh, constituent group, I guess. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, that's, you're totally on the right track. And let me, I'm going to go ahead and share this just in case we decide to post this video. I want, um, 
I want to share my screen so I can show you this animate data. So Pew Research Center was kind of on that same track. They did this big survey. Can you see this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in 1994, they started sending out this survey that it's just 10 questions to assess the, um, you know, how conservative an individual is. And we're, I'll send you guys the link and we'll post it on the website and all that stuff so you can really dig into the meat of the methods if you so choose. But it's, it's 10 very basic questions that, honestly, when I was going through it, I was thinking neither or both for all 10 of them. They're pretty polarizing questions. So they've been sending this out to a huge chunk of people since 1994. So it assesses this idea of, you know, how conservative or liberal is the general public. And then they also have it broken down to those who are politically engaged, which I don't know if that's self-identified. I haven't dug in enough to the data set to see exactly how they um, measure that politically engaged, but we'll just stick to the general. Voted. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering how basic they get with that. So anyways, we'll go ahead and just show this, this animation. And this also just makes me think of a million other questions too, like what happened in 2011 for it to just bounce like that. And then in 2017, and I would venture to guess that 2020 is a little bit gloomier outlook than even this. So for just solely our listeners, we see these overlapping um, ideologies between median Republican and median Democrat stay somewhat consistent in their overlap from um, 1994 to 1999. And then even 2004, and we see the whole group shift somewhat to the left towards the more liberal ideology. And then something happens between 2004 and 2011, and we see the two sides really separate, and then they just increase in their separation in terms of their ideology from there. And the overlap in the moderate, you know, groups just continues to shrink. And this is in the Pew Research Studies general public. And then we have the politically engaged. So this is 1994, still more separated than what the general public looks like for this year. But we'll go ahead and do the animation. Again, shifting left on both sides towards the more liberal. And then something happens in 2011 that just parts the waters and now in 2017, we see the lowest degree of mixed ideology in the U.S., according to this study. And it's kind of scary. And it, it makes you think like, okay, there's obviously a lot of different factors going on, a lot of things that contribute to this, but I'm just so fixated on this social media idea that I can't let it go. But now we've identified there's definitely an issue with hyperpolarization across the U.S. People are talking about it. Pew Research Center is not a small group. Like they, and they've spent a lot of time studying this and have amped up their efforts around the topic. So now I'm going to read you this that one that it's actually a news release about a study that came out 
in June 2020, June of this year. So it says, a certain degree of polarization of political opinions is considered normal and even beneficial to the health of democracy. In the last few decades, however, conservative and liberal views have been drifting farther apart than ever, and at the same time have become more consistent. When too much polarization hampers a nation's ability to combat, combat threats such as the coronavirus pandemic, it can even be deadly. And then we have a quote from one of the primary authors. We feel high balance when dealing with someone we like and with whom we agree in all political issues. We also feel high balance towards those we hate and with whom we disagree. So this study is really honing in on the psychological aspect of what we're seeing with hyperpolarization. And they're using the cognitive balance theory as kind of their, I guess, their standing point or their what can, why can i think of the word their their jump their jumping ground oh their baseline yeah that works. i don't know if i understand what you're saying yeah yeah that's probably it um <laughs> that's what they're using as their base for this so it's this idea that when we like somebody we expect for whatever their political views are to match we're, uh, we're going to like that too. If we like the person, we're going to like their political ideology. Yep. Yep. Because as a society, we have melded together personality and ideology and your political leaning as one and the same. There's no separation anymore. And that's, <clears throat> and a couple of these other studies, which I'm not going to get into it for the sake of time, but I will send it and we can talk about it in a later episode, are talking about this complete self-identity and political affiliation and it's becoming more and more pungent for multiple reasons but now we're getting into this this what they call weighted balance theory so it says um let me see here so this goes on to say but what happens when opinions and interpersonal attitudes are in conflict with each other i.e when individuals disagree with others they like or agree with others they dislike People will try to overcome this imbalance by adapting their opinions in order to increase balance with their emotions. So when people can't, when people like, so for, okay, I think Trump's the most perfect example. I greatly dislike who he is as a human being. And so no matter the, no matter the policy that his administration comes out with, it is, it is cognitively imbalanced for me to like the policy that he creates because I don't like him. How could I like the policy that he creates? But this is something that over the last four years now I've learned, well, A, I just need to get over and B, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. And so this is what this new weighted balance theory is talking about is that it's way more complex than just topic by topic, policy by policy, person by person, all of these things overlap each other. And on top of that, we have such a party affiliated society that we are party over everything else. And so you overlay that on top of it. So anything that a Republican believes, it's like almost you just, if you, you don't, the words, what? Like you can't even hear the words or facts before right. you're already associating your own emotion and opinion and bias towards it exactly and i think i was just gonna say i think I, I think on the flip side there's some interesting like studies 
where they've tested this essentially, right? Where uh, they read, you know, they tell it's, it's, I don't know who does this. I don't, I'm sure you can find it on some Facebook video, which Kate would tell you as part of the, <laughs> what's the, the social dilemma or whatever the thing oh, yeah. is. But, I'm probably you know, a little bit too passionate about it right now. I need to no, no, I, I respect it thoroughly. But it's an interesting study. Essentially, it says, you know, hey, um, this is a quote by, uh, and they typically try to identify kind of the political leanings of the people they're interviewing. They say it's by somebody they would like, you know, so a group of college students, you know, say, hey, this is this is an Obama quote. And they read the quote and it's actually from Trump or something like yeah. that. And the students are like, this is a great quote. I love it so much. And then you do the opposite. You know, you read a uh, Karl Marx quote and say, hey, this is, this is Donald Trump said this. And, you know, uh, the Trump supporters are like, this is the best quote ever. That's why I love Donald Trump. It's like, actually, this is <laughs> totally not. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's funny because it's like, we are so quick to do that. Uh, I think that kind of speaks to, I think some of that's like subconscious. Like some of that's the psych, the, there's some psycho, psychology term, you know, where it's exactly what you described, Kate. Like if you like somebody, then you will attribute like positive attributes to that person. Right. Um, it's implicit bias. It right. really, through and through. Yeah. Amber. And I also think there's another component of it. I'd be curious to like kind of tease out like where the line is as far as kind of what what's more responsible for this. But there there, there has to be something about, um, you know, this is kind of a pretty involved example, but I, I'll kind of try to keep it pretty baseline, which is to say like, it's I always, it's interesting to me, like you have people on social media who, you know, need to project their general belief, like, and wouldn't share something that's contrary to that or would share something that is supportive of that and it, it kind of came to mind and i think that's like probably a trait of somebody who's a little more politically involved or at least engaged um because i do think it's kind of funny if you have somebody who is maybe less so um you know who's kind of maybe not somebody who um they probably maybe they vote in every election but they maybe don't you know uh, follow all the you know politics to that level or whatever you know i wonder if that issue is actually not as prevalent in those populations yeah. because there isn't that conscious like, Oh, I need to project this. I need to be, you know, I need to be the good conservative Facebook pay. I need to be the, you know, the good, good liberal today. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Uh, I'd be curious to see how that all plays out. I totally agree. I, I want to read this one last um, excerpt and it's, it's from the actual weighted balance model of opinion hyperpolarization. So the actual study that that last news um, release was referencing. And I think this kind of gets into what our goal is with this podcast, obviously to a much smaller scale since our audience is not the whole ass world like this. It could be. Study is. <laughs> but they say, and it's this is the first two sentences of the introduction of this study. And it says, Political polarization has increased steeply over recent years in many democratic societies, up to the point of posing a threat to political stability. If we want to explain the continuing surge of polarization, it is crucial to understand the psychological and social mechanisms that generate it and the circumstances under which they operate. So I think just talking about this stuff, understanding why we think the way we do, why we have that visceral reaction when we hear one party name over the other um, is the first step in overcoming that want to throw up 
more than you want to hear what that other person has to say. (laughs) And I think, you know, love your neighbor, right? Like be able to hear the other person out regardless of those, those initial reactions that you have because of these psychological, these social implicit biases that have been ingrained in us from, you know, which we'll get into our social media and these other outlets that have been hounding negative campaign ads at us since we've been able to vote. I mean, I don't know the exact date on when that became such a social phenomenon, but I know since I've, I've been absorbing political campaign ads and such, it's, I've only seen the negative. Um, yeah. But I think, I think just something to throw into the pot that we can, we'll have to, you know, uh, get into this more in another episode, obviously, but I think there's also something to be said about how like polarization there's like, I, I see kind of two sides polarization. There's like the political side, which is the projection side, which I would say it's the yard signs, you know, it's the rallies. It's the, um, it's, it's, it's honestly, it's a lot of it, I think is electoral politics. Um, you know, who do you support in this race? And that becomes your two sides on social media uh, or, or whatever. Um, but I think there's, I think there's another level to it, which is like on the policy side, I think that potentially is a separate, I don't think it's a separate issue, but I, I do wonder, you know, I think in addition, like in my mind, this entire time I've been thinking about how, you know, oh yeah, this, this is this is talking about electoral politics, so this is about this, but, you know, the reality is polarization also means polarization of policy too, right? So it, I think that might be way. some of the reason why it's so hard to come together on some of these things is because it's not just that your candidates are different, and they certainly are. Um, but the way, I mean, we're talking about two different, this is a polarizing statement, right? Hear me out. But to some extent that, you know, you hear people try to project it as there are two different visions for America. That's not, in my opinion, entirely untrue, you know? And I think that, you know, without, like I said, getting way too into that, I think that's, uh, that's something we'll have to wrestle with because it's really easy to say, get along love your neighbor right now, but, yeah. uh, you know, if your policy positions are truly that different on some things, that's a tough one to reconcile. So, you know, it's not as easy as, oh, just swallow it and go on and whatever, but I don't know, so. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's just, it's, it's shocking and it's a bummer and also very scary to see that animation, I think, is a, very surface but prime example of there's no way that it's much harder to meet in the middle and we have to make such larger leaps to get there and I think step one is figuring out why we have we have gone so far on either direction and that's the first step in figuring out how to get it somewhat back to the center and I'm just excited to dive in. I know there's a lot of really big brains out there that are working on this and hopefully we can use this to just kind of gossip about it more or less. And ironically, I'd take a second just to explain some of that thought I had earlier because I think it actually has an interesting ramification because I think this will be the last, the time we post this podcast, like in the next podcast will be after the election, right? Right. So, so, uh, 
you know, the reminder to vote clearly, uh, you know, here, which I think is interesting. You see reminders on every social media platform, um, emails from companies, you know, school, what have you. I think it's all good. Um, but I would actually wager that the more people that participate in the democratic process of voting uh, actually could be a really important um, factor in reducing hyperpolarization. Uh, hyper, hyper and here's why I think that. Because I think some of the cause of this is that when you're playing election politics, when you're trying to win an election, uh, you target your most likely voters. And the reality is uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's not, everybody is not equal in the sense of their propensity to vote. Uh, and it's this, I mean, this is, this is, I think, both a strength and a drawback of the era of data-driven politics is that I think to a large extent the tail wags the dog. Kate's heard me say this 1,200 times, so I apologize to have to say it again. But I think that's interesting. If you're running for whatever your office is, uh, it's in your best interest to identify, hey, what, what makes 51% of the li most likely voters in my district go to the polls and cast a vote? And those issues may not be of any importance to the rest of the population. If they are of importance, it's not to the same level or to the same extent. Um, you know, we're talking big picture issues, abortion, immigration, economy, but also maybe smaller issues that we're not even, you know, maybe not as nationalized. But um, anyways, so I think if the number of most likely voters becomes larger, you have to target a larger population and 51% of your most likely voters, which is always gonna be how the game works, always how the game is played, is going to look a lot different than the, the, the political ideology in that 51% or in that group of most likely voters in the district as a whole will probably be more diverse and will probably be less extreme. And if you have extremists on one side or you have it on the other, you might be able to shoot the middle a little better. I and love then, that positivity. Wow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because then it's like, regardless of whether, you know, and like I say, I say the quote all the time, ask any of my friends to talk about politics with, the, I think the tail wags the dog because I think that, you know, really, a lot of what a politician says is a regurgitation of the best concoction of that most likely voter. Yeah. Right. But I just, yeah. as we're talking about this tonight, yeah. I'm thinking, man, if everybody voted and your target was, you know, I, don't, I can't remember the numbers in the state of Kansas, but uh, you'd, uh, it, it looked pretty different. You know, if you're targeting, if you're Delta to win an election, let's say a state house race, right? I don't know how many people, and there's 22,000 people in a, in a district, but the voting maybe is 10,000. And if I'm trying to appease, so to speak, 5,000 people, 5,100 people, that's going to be a little more directed than if I'm trying to speak to 11,000 people. And that's yeah. important. So, yeah. Anyways, that's, that's my thought. <laughs> I hear, hear. <laughs> Nailed it. Mic drop. Absolutely. Boom. I, so I have a question for, um, so after the 2016 election was when I started to give a shit about politics before then trash voting record, like just, I wasn't involved and yeah, I'm sorry to say that, but it's the truth. Was there such a call for voting across the masses as there has been for this 2020 election? I don't remember it being I don't either this pungent, but I also again wasn't really looking for it as hard either. Yeah. 
that's kind of what I was going to say. And also social media has evolved so much, even in the last four years. And there's just seemed to be a lot of like activism and that sort of engagement across all platforms. So I want to say this is the most, or like maybe the strongest call to action to vote that I've ever seen, but there's a lot of factors that could be influencing that. But yeah, I do, I do love how, honestly, I even think it like my dog's little daycare place. There's like a sign that's like a reminder to vote. Like everywhere you go, there's a reminder to vote. Cafe Corazon is a notary now. Like they have different small businesses that can, that can validate your ballot. Mm -hmm. I love that. I know it's cool. I I think some, I think some of the reason potentially is that we, whether it's correct or not, I think, I think we often, we derive the solutions of the problems of the day in 2016 as not entirely like, or maybe even before 2016 is a bad example. But I was thinking like, um, you know, I, I, w- I wonder if, if there's a perception that that your vote matters more now based on the issues of the day. Like, I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not, or if there's even that perception out there, but I do wonder if we've turned a corner on this and we realize the importance more than just participate in the political thing or whatever. So right. anyway, I don't know. But yes, no, to answer your question, I don't remember it being as much. And I think that's, for the thing I just said, I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Well, Maybe that's our big number one highlight in policy here. Our little countdown from the beginning of the episode. That's my number one. What is it? Sorry. Just all the all the engagement and voting. And- yeah, vote. Okay. Now I understand. Sorry. Um, I, I agree with you completely. And I think that, you know, more than anything, I think the biggest difference between this episode and the last episode of season one is just a, a new ray of hope. I think when we went dark after season one, shit was just really hitting the fan. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of new hope. I think uh, not just around the pandemic and everything else. I think that that's what I, that's the thing I'm most looking forward to is finding the little, the, the tiny rays of hope, just like the monologue Jack went on. The idea that if we can identify our, our weaknesses in hyperpolarization, hopefully we can overcome them as a group. Um, I'm just, I'm excited for this season, but that's all I got guys. And we're, we're nearing um, an hour. Do we have any final words? No, I'm just excited to kind of continue on and um, talk about this because I think to some extent, um, you know, there's, with the exception of a handful of like really, of the really dedicated um, policy wonks, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees uh, because of, um, you know, some of those, and I think the reality is, man, how many, how many, how many healthcare, healthcare positive things, you know, things to be good for healthcare are in limbo or just simply not being discussed or because we are in, we're gridlocked at any level. And I think that unfortunately is not um, limited to the capital uh, in DC or in Camp or in Topeka. It's, I think it's, it's in our, in our timelines and <laughs> daily conversations. So. I agree. Rachel, any final finals before we sign off? 
no final finals. I think this is the meat and the potatoes and the nail on the head. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'm so happy that we decided to uh, kick this back up. I know you guys are crazy, crazy busy, but I'm glad to steal an hour-ish of your time once a month so that we can all get back together and hopefully we can do this in person soon. Amen. Yes. All right, Amen. guys. Thanks, everybody. Bye. I'm Jack. I'm Rachel. I'm Kate. And, and this, this is, is Health Yeah. yeah. Something you want to learn more about? Suggestions for future episodes? We'd love to hear from you. Send along any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, or general roasts to healthyaks at gmail.com or visit our website at healthyaks.org. Healthyaks, that's H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-E-A-H-K-S.org. And as always, thanks for listening. Recording and production for this podcast was done by Health Yeah in collaboration with KUMC, Department of Family Medicine Research Division. Thoughts and opinions are our own and not a reflection of the University of Kansas Medical Center. Intro and outro music used for this podcast is Southern Dreaming, performed by the Sheepdogs.